As a part of National Hispanic Heritage Month, Crypto and I are going through our Oxford book of Latin American short stories. Today, we have one of the most important Latin stories of all time, and that is Julio Ramon Ribeiro's The Featherless Buzzards. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am Crypto, the feathered buzzard. If you are new to our channel, please consider hitting that subscribe button as we go through literature discussions, bringing out some of the hidden meanings and interpretations behind these words. And as always, we start off with publication information, and this was written in 1955 by Julio Ramon Ribeiro, and our version is translated by Diana Douglas. Now for Julio, he was definitely a man of the 50s when it comes to his techniques. He was considered one of the best Latin American short storytellers. His characters were very simple and often, often met a very tragic end. We could describe Julio as an author from, say, a fallen middle class, and he liked to represent that person in his stories. And we'll see that with the themes today, with class divide and resourcing, child labor, poverty, and refuse. So for plot, what we do typically is we're going to go through a quick plot recap to make sure we're on the same page of what happened, and then we're going to go into our discussion and analysis, bringing out some of the interpretations of the story. So early in the twilight before morning, the featherless buzzards come out to sift through the trash. Don Santos, a crotchety old man who runs a farm, sends his grandchildren, Efrain and Enrique, out to scour the garbage for consumable food and useful items. The grandfather is raising his pig, Pascolito, and is attempting to fatten the pig to sell it for a higher price. The children head to an upper-class part of town to peruse the trash for leftover food. And they must work quickly as maids will shoo them away and garbage trucks will ruin their workday. The winter is harsh one year, and Grandfather sends the children to head out further towards the sea. And Ephraim, while out there, steps on a shard of glass and becomes injured and is unable to continue scavenging. Grandfather meets with a butcher, and his eyes are filled with greed with the potential of the sale. He tries to push his grandsons harder with little regard to their health or concern. Enrique soon picks up a dog, Pedro, and has him stay with his brother while he's gone working for the day while his brother stays home and nurses his, his injury. And soon, Enrique becomes sick, and the grandfather's unable to go out, and they suffer with three days of laying in bed. Eventually, due to desperation, grandfather forces Enrique out to go look for food, and upon returning, Enrique learns that Pedro has bitten grandfather while he was gone and was fed to the pig for food. In a scramble of anger, Enrique and Grandfather fight, and Grandfather falls over into the pen. The boys walk away, hearing the pigs make a noise. I love this story. It's so simple, but I think that there is so much meat on the bones. See what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with the names of the people in the story that may not be clear for some people, particularly our English speakers, but maybe it's more clear for those from Spanish descent. Efraín is the Spanish form of the Hebrew masculine of Ephraim, or Ephraim, depending on, I've heard it pronounced a million different ways. I'll put the, uh, the, the spelling of it up on the screen. But it means fruitful. And in Genesis 41:52, it says, The name of the second Joseph called him Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Which is interesting because this is one of the characters that is going out and actually working hard. Enrique is the brother that comes into his own and he has the coming of age moment and has to grow up faster than what a normal child probably would. Uh, and he leads his brother out to the promised land. And then we hold Don Santos with Santos meaning saint, which is ironic in its usage, obviously, as this man is not a saint. And we assume it's probably the surname of the boys, but it's never clarified. And finally, we have Pascual the pig, and this is derived from the word relating to Easter. 
And in some forms of Hebrew, the tradition is given to the firstborn male child, which is kind of ironic, showing how Santos always preferred the pig over his grandsons. It's kind of his firstborn child in the story. Ouch. All right, so let's start with, uh, let's talk about division. So the story starts out with with divide right in the beginning with twilight. We always talk about how twilight is not a state. Twilight is always defined as in between states, between morning and between evening. It is not a third state. So we have the story taking place between states. People walking about the city at this hour seem to be made of another substance to belong to a ghostly order of life. And the way he describes the, you know, the night shift and the morning shift coming on, it's quite brilliant. That is beautiful. It really is. And I think that there's a lot there to represent what the people are right off the bat. Well, and a divide also starts to introduce the concept of a hierarchy in the story. We have a lot of people feeding off the scraps of a different class or different level above them. Even the dogs have acquired certain habits and schedules, wisely coached by poverty. So clearly this is going to be a story where we're going to be coached by poverty into that scrap-based model, right? Yeah, and even inside the family, you see this hierarchy as well, where there's grandfather and then Pasquale and then the two grandsons below them. The grandfather has no regard for his grandson's health and well-being whatsoever. All he cares about is that pig. He feeds off of the grandkids, right? The pig feeds off of what the grandkids bring back. The kids go to the upper class part of town to feed the leftovers of refuse for them. And it's kind of the one man's trash is another man's treasure trope. It reminds me of that Netflix movie that recently came out where each level passes down their leftover food to the level below them. We get that visual in the story of things coming kind of downhill. Yeah, the platform where... There is enough for everybody, but it's not divided up evenly. There is not that. There is a hierarchy of division of wealth. Which leads to the eventual irony of the pig feeding upon the grandfather at the end, right? Oh, I love it. That's the best part of the story, right? <laughs> it's implied, like too, because he leaves it open-ended. I mean, you hear sounds, but... It's so good. So good. All right. So let's start talking about one of the major themes of this, which I would say is child labor, which is a big deal in Peru. For those of you that didn't know, my wife and I, we honeymooned in Peru, spent about two weeks there. We spent another two weeks in uh, Nicaragua, spent two weeks in Guatemala, love visiting Latin America, but child labor is a very serious thing there. I put a link to an article below from The Guardian. There's tons of articles out there, but it'll give you some quotes and ideas about life is different there in terms of kids being forced to wake up at 4 a.m. and work in the agricultural or or some type of manual labor, only to have to walk 40 minutes to an hour to school, go to school all day, walk 40 minutes to an hour back home, and then work on the farm all day. Child labor is a very serious concern in a lot of these cultures. And if you said they got to go to school, that was very, very lucky if they did get to go to school. Many times they are working 16, 18 hours, six, seven days a week. So school is almost a reprieve for them. Well, and sometimes they don't even get to go to school because they're pulled out to work, right? To, To your point, that school is a privilege there. And we see the grandfather become a representation of adults forcing problems or labor onto children in the story do we not oh for sure yeah they're having to grow up way too fast to do what adults should be doing instead of being a kid well we see when we talk about having to walk 40 minutes or an hour to school we start to see that here when times get rough again the same thing that we talked about with this article when winter comes all of a sudden these kids have to walk further out to sea they gotta head to the dumpster to start doing the hard labor and work 
in order to to feed the family. Yeah, exactly. So they're having to double down. Well, and the children have no say in the situation. They're literally powerless at the hands of their adults because adults tell them what to do. They they don't have a choice in the matter. Yeah, nobody's looking out for them. The grandfather is using them like a tool and he doesn't care about them. He doesn't love about them. Uh, and you can see this in his eyes, you know, and, and how he treats them, how he talks to them. Uh, and all he cares about the potential sale of is his pig. When he calls the boys trash to throw away, right? And trash is obviously a big theme of this story, too. Yeah, and even when Afrin gets sick, he's like, suck it up and go work. You need to keep working. So the first time the boys stand up to the grandfather is the dog, right? And the grandfather wants to get rid of the dog immediately because it's another mouth to feed. He can't deal with that utility. But as soon as the boy, Enrique, says, well, the dog's going to help me find food for you, that's when the grandfather's like, okay, this thing is a tool for me. It can provide a service. That's when the grandfather turns around on opinion, not when it's a dog to keep your sick grandson who's possibly dying of a foot infection here of company. Yeah. I think with the dog, too, you see that the grandfather only views it as a tool, and anybody as a tool, but with the, the kids, the boys, they think that the dog needs to be saved because of that childhood innocence that they're caring for someone else more than they care for themselves. Would you say that the dog, the relationship with the dog is showing in this story true compassion and connection almost kind of like how the brothers have a brotherly love that they never experience with the grandfather or anyone else in the story yeah for sure or it's showing the inhumanity of the grandfather who doesn't love dogs right <laughs> <laughs> now along the way each of them kind of becomes injured and typically an injury means something very specific in the literature and what the melodies say about the people right Ephraim, the fruitful gets a glass shard in his foot and literally is walking on bird feces at the landfill. And the grandfather doesn't have a leg. Well, and then grandfather says, well, you can just wash that away. You can just wash away the problems. But you can't really wash away the problems in the situation, can you, right? You can't just make the child not go to work because the issue is grandfather is forcing the child labor on these kids. The real issue is the grandfather, and you can't just wash away those sins. Yeah, and this is something that you can't ignore, right? That there, there's an injury, you should be taking care of it, and he's not taking care of it. He's not taking care of the real, he's taking care of the symptoms, not the, not the actual infection, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, Enrique has a cough, which I think the idea is that he's being suffocated by his responsibilities, his loss of childhood. He's literally suffocating as a child, and that's what his cough is kind of meant to represent here. And then last, as we kind of mentioned before, the grandfather has his wooden leg. And what, what what's up with a wooden leg? Well, I think what the, the wooden leg is meant to, like you said, directly compare with Enrique because it's artificial. right? Everything with this grandfather is artificial and a tool. This foot is a tool for him to move somewhere, but it's artificial in the same way his relationships are with other people. And what happens when his leg finally breaks, that artificial relationship falls apart with his grandsons and they indirectly kill him. Right. With, without the real leg there, his, his artificial leg broken, his relationship with his grandsons, if you want to call it that, is broken. And uh, that's what kind of leads him to his demise, which is, which is kind of exciting as the two brothers become one to run off into the night, right? And he's only got one leg and not another to stand on. <laughs> you love that joke. 
<laughs> it's pretty cool, kind of symbolic at the end there, though. I love it. I love it. The two brothers kind of becoming one. It's great. It's beautiful. Now, I do want to call out, I didn't want to talk too much about it just because I didn't think it was that unique in the story, but there is tons of religious symbology, right? He was sick for three days in terms of the rebirth, and that's when the boys kind of go off on their own finally. You've got three main characters, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's clearly a comparison there. And then obviously we went through the names from the Bible, like Ephraim is obviously a biblical name along with the other uh, fruitfulness discussions and the idea of these kids having to produce for the family while others feed off of them in the same way that the kids are feeding off of the, you know, the rich part of town in a sense too. There's clearly a uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure commentary here. For sure. So would you put the, f- the grandfather as the father, the son, the grandsons as the sons and the pig is the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Pasqualito! <laughs> uh, love bacon. All right, let's move into our wrap-up and ratings here. This was a very good story, obviously one of the most popular stories in Latin America for good reason because it is so entertaining. Crypto, what are you going to so rate? I think that for an analytical standpoint, I think it's a pretty simple story. Uh, I think that it talks about the class divide, everything we discussed. It, it, there's not a lot there. There is, but there isn't. It just—it's very straightforward. I think this is, you know, high school level stuff. So maybe a solid seven there. But for enjoyment, oh man, I loved this story. I got to give it a nine point five. So I mean, we're evening out to maybe like what an eight point five ish around there somewhere. Bam! I mean, you got to read this one. It's—it's it's so good. It's a little graphic, but man, it's good. Man, it's good. And I—we I, didn't even talk about the the title of it, the Featherless Buzzards. We didn't even go into that as well. That, that That's a cool play on words because I didn't get it at first until I got in there. I'm like, oh, he's talking about the boys. And I was yeah. like, man, this guy's good. He's got me already. I'm sold. Right. Because everybody's feeding on something in the story, right? Yeah. Yeah. But they ain't got no feathers because they're human. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel. I think I feel the same way as you where this almost gives me... Not because of the religious side of, by any means, but because it's so simplistic. It reminds me a little bit of Tolstoy's writing. And I've read some of his other stories, and they have a very similar feel. They're very entertaining, very simple, very easy to get the point of. But there's still a lot there. I think I will go with the exact same analytical rating of a 7. I, th- I think you said 7, right? Yeah, 7. And then I think for my enjoyment, I'm going to go with like a 9. Maybe just half a point lower than you. I, I do really enjoy the story as well. So that'll average out to an 8. Yeah, so we're the same there, as usual. Well, all right, guys. Hopefully you had some fun with this story and this discussion today. If you're looking forward to more Latin American short stories, please consider hitting that subscribe button to join us on the journey through this month. Una out. Peace.